You're listening to Vet Candy. Hello and welcome to this episode of Vet Candy IRL. I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. So today I have a pretty fascinating guest for you guys to listen to. I mean, not only will her accent actually be fun to listen to, but she has some pretty cool stories for us all. And her name is Dr. Bronwyn, and she is actually originally from Australia and now practices in the U.S. as an ACVS boarded surgeon. So please help me welcome Dr. Bronwyn. Hi, how are you? Hi, Shannon. Hi. Yeah, this is Bronwyn Fuligar. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining me today. So before we get into all the nitty gritty surgery stuff, tell us a little bit about like your background, what it's like going to school in Australia, and then we'll kind of go through like your travels and everywhere that you've lived. I grew up in uh, Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, and um, like several or many veterinarians in Australia decided to become a vet, you know, halfway through high school and then went pretty much directly from high school into vet school. So I actually started vet school when I was 17, which is kind of wild when when you think about it, you know, graduated from UQ and vet school in Australia at that, well, at least at that time was, was super fun. Like, you know, best five years ever, lots of social events and outdoor activities and beach camping trips. You know, occasionally we went to lectures. It was, it was great. And then after that, I worked in mixed animal practice in a fairly small North Queensland town called Mackay, um, which is in up in the tropics next to the Great Barrier Reef, full of snakes and hot weather and crocodiles and exciting, exciting uh, tropical lifestyle, full of dangerous wildlife. It was the my first few years in practice were spent dealing with the most amazing array of poisonous creatures and toxicities and infectious diseases. It was really compared to now living in the high desert of Oregon. It was really, <laughs> really a diverse caseload. <laughs> So yeah, lots of lots of really fun stuff there. And I was fortunate to have some really good mentors early on in that practice. We had a really good time. Um, my boss was, you know, a very experienced country vet and he he let us new grads not have free reign, but but definitely try things with with backup. And so it was a nice place to kind of gain a little bit of confidence and and to be a new grad. Um, definitely felt very supported up there. And then from there, like many Australian veterinarians and lived in the UK for a couple of years. So how was it over there? Uh, it was good. Yeah. So I went from, from kind of tropical cane fields and rainforest and, and sort of mixed practice driving through vast open spaces through to the suburbs of East London, which is a little bit of a culture shock, but I would think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a cultural experience and um, worked in, I was a locum over there. So I worked in a variety of different um, little small animal practices all over England and Scotland. Yeah, and you got to travel in Europe a fair bit, which was great. Um, and then, yeah, started decided I wanted to specialize after that. Wow. So with your license, because, I mean, it's AVMA accredited, so does that mean it goes, like, you can practice anywhere in Europe? Do you need, like, a different European license too, or can you just go from Australia to Europe without any additional, like, testing? Yeah, that's a very good question for anybody who wants to practice vet med overseas. At the time when I graduated from UQ, University of Queensland, it was not AVMA accredited. Made things a little challenging when I moved to North America. But no, it is RCVS accredited, which is the Royal College of Vet Surgeons. That's that licensing board of the UK. And so 
I believe that many North American schools are also RCVS accredited, although it would be something to check with each individual school. And that allows you to uh, get a veterinary license in the UK. Europe, I'm not sure about. I'm not sure if, if it's different. So I have never actually practiced vet med in, in like mainland Europe, just in the UK. Yeah, the in order to practice in North America from a non-AVMA accredited school, once you're outside of academia, so while you're in your internship or your residency, if you're in sort of an academic environment and you're supervised, you can get a, a limited license. So that's not too bad. But then if you want to go practice in private practice in North America, you have to sit for like 15 tests. <laughs> yeah, the ECFVG, which is the accrediting test series for foreign veterinarians. And it's pretty grueling. You know, the NAVLI is the easiest test out of all of it. So it's not an easy set of tests and it's quite expensive. So that, that's kind of a barrier to many people trying to come to the North America so something to consider. But I think, yeah, if you're if you're doing vet school in North America and you or you did vet school in North America and you want to practice overseas, I think it's possible to practice in Australia and New Zealand without sitting additional big tests and quite possibly the UK. So something to check on because it's pretty fun to to travel. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I because I haven't, I mean, with COVID and everything, I haven't been thinking about traveling, but yeah, that's really neat to be able to think about practicing in different places. Yeah, I think the landscape of international travel has certainly changed, obviously, in the last couple of years. But hopefully the era of international travel will return and then it'll be a little bit easier to, yeah, to move around and enjoy working in different places. Absolutely. So where did you go after the UK? So you were a locum in the UK for a while and then what happened? Um, so then I applied through the North American match. I decided that I wanted to specialize in North America. I'd heard good things about the training programs over there and I thought it sounded cool to live in North America for a bit particularly since I really love the mountains and skiing and things. And so I applied through the match and I got an internship, matched to an internship in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. So yeah, that's where I did my internship. And then applied through the match again and matched to a surgical residency in um, at Ohio State in Columbus. So yeah, I went through the, the regular VIRMP program. That's so cool. So So you were in Ohio for three or four years and then you're now in Oregon, right? Yeah, yeah. So then I have to, so I have moved around a lot. This is there's a there's a theme. There's a theme here. <laughs> I have a picture of the world map in my mind and I'm like, okay, she was here, here, here. <laughs> Quite a trail. Yeah, I've had a I've had a lot of different phone numbers. <laughs> After uh, Ohio, I moved actually back to Calgary because um, I loved the Canadian Rockies and and I liked living in Calgary, so I went to practice there for a few years. And then ended up becoming a a locum for a few years, a surgical locum. I took some time off and did some travel and locumed really all over the place, North America, Australia, um, as a surgeon for a few years, which was fun. And it gave me some flexibility to do some other things, you know, travel and, and such and teaching and other things in life, which was great for a few years. And then after the, one of the practices that I locumed at was actually the practice that I now work for in um, Bend, Oregon. And Bend is a great place. It was kind of one of my favorite places to come and locum, both because the place is really fun and because the practice is great. When the pandemic hit, um, the timing just kind of worked out and there was a job opportunity in Bend. And so, yeah, now I've, now I've recently moved to Bend. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. If you're like me, you want to improve your skills, 
And that means improving your clinical confidence. That's why VetCandy created a master course in respiratory disease. The master course is taught by a board-certified criticalist and delivers a thorough evaluation of the science and clinical practice skills needed to master respiratory disease from diagnosis and management to client counseling. Plus, when you complete the course, you earn a certificate of completion as a certified respiratory educator and exclusive tools to celebrate, recognize, and share your accomplishment. And what's even more exciting? The course is free and provides race and New York State approved continuing education credits. This master course is brought to you by Trudell Animal Health, the makers of the AeroCat Chamber. You can start helping your patients breathe better by taking it for free today at myvetcandy.com forward slash respiratory. That's so awesome. I, I feel like I've heard so much about Bend, Oregon as like one of those up and coming cities, kind of like Austin, Texas, you know, where a lot of millennials are moving to. <laughs> well, I don't want to say too many good things about it because it's supposed to be a secret, but, but it is pretty fun here. <laughs> the worst is the worst kept secret of the northwest right <laughs> no it's a really it's a really fun place to live it's definitely growing rapidly and um has tons and tons of outdoor yeah opportunities to have have fun outside of work it's also a nice size like i like living in smaller places so yeah it's it's been great how was your your residency like you know when i think of a surgery residency i think of like being on call a lot definitely super intense so how did that kind of go and what were your surgical boards like? Surgical boards. Oh. <laughs> it's a time in life most of us try to forget. The boards, I mean. <laughs> no, the residency, the residency was really tough. I mean, Ohio State has a, a great training program. It, it has a really high caseload, a really high surgical caseload. So you get to see all kinds of really amazing surgical procedures that you may not get to sort of have exposure to elsewhere. And the emergency caseload is really high. So there was a lot of on-call, but we had, yeah, we had a great group of residents because it is a big university. We had a resident group, I think was seven surgery residents over the three-year program. So we had, we ended up becoming quite good friends and had really good support through them and had some, some really supportive faculty who helped us out and definitely got excellent training. So from a board standpoint, you know, really, really well prepared for the, for the board exam, although it was still really hard. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, residencies, any residency is, is challenging. You know, you, you sort of go into it knowing it's going to be a challenge and just, you know, hard times come up and you just have to kind of push through. But so, yeah, it was, it was challenging, but, but it was like fascinating and very kind of mentally exciting, if that makes sense. Like you were always seeing cases you've never seen before and, you know, getting to do surgeries you've never done. So in that sense, it's, yeah, it's exciting and it's fun to learn. You know, it's fun to be a be a learner. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I love the, the mental uh, stretching that happens when you, you do something that you've never done before and it's fascinating. And what kind of drove you to surgery as a specialty? Yeah, I think a combination of things. I think I like the, like many surgeons, I guess I liked the act of learning a physical skill as well as mentally challenging myself, if that makes sense. So, you know, being somebody that physically well, sometimes we get to fix, I, I hesitate to use the word fixing because it's not always fixing, but, but sometimes, yeah, physically sort of fixing something and having short-term projects that have a, hopefully again, a, a sort of a finite completion. Sometimes we, we have long-term projects, but that usually means that <laughs> something's quite frustrating. But no, I think the sort of short-term gratification 
is really nice. You know, you finish a day of surgery and you've sort of completed a number of cases and that's really nice. And I like the balance between having a day of consulting, which I actually really enjoy. I like, you know, talking to members of the public about their pets and, and teaching clients and explaining things and stuff like that. But I also like to have the break or the contrast of then spending a day, you know, in a smaller group setting in the OR. You just use your mind in a totally different way. I guess I like that too. And then I think also going to school in Australia at that time, there weren't too many boarded specialists in Australia. And so surgery is usually one of the first specialties to, you know, appear as a specialty that, that exists at every different practice that you go to pretty much and it's available, it's necessary all over the world. And so I thought it was kind of applicable if I wanted to work overseas, if I wanted to volunteer, if I wanted to teach, you know, surgery is always going to be sort of in demand and and sort of gives you those opportunities to to work in all kinds of different environments. I, I could have been happy doing other specialties too. I think, you know, like it, I think like many people, you know, you you make the best decision at the time and surgery's worked out really well, but I also find other things, you know, really interesting. So yeah, I think sometimes, you know, that's one of the, I don't want to call it a negative of being a specialist, but one of the things that people may not think about when you get specialized is that sometimes, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities, but they're very specific in where they're located and where you can work. So it almost makes the pool a little bit smaller for some specialties, like not every community or city can have an oncologist that's just there. Maybe they don't have enough caseload for that person to be able to work there full time. So, but with surgery, it's a little bit more. You know, there's a lot of surgeries that general practitioners don't like to do or aren't comfortable in doing with their, with their own training. So I feel like surgery is a lot easier to move around with because the breadth of what you do, it's a very wide specialty in what you can offer as opposed to just like say oncology or just dermatology or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think things like dermatology is something that is in demand probably everywhere and and doesn't require a huge amount of, of specialized equipment or space. If you compare that to somebody like a radiation oncologist, for example, that really needs a, a place that has a linear accelerator. And yeah, that's something to think about. You know, if, if you're interested in radiation oncology, like, you know, it's it's fascinating, but it does limit, you know, where, where you can practice that. Although you can also do radonc, I think, remotely now by making plans over the internet. So that's kind of cool too. But no, I think surgery, and, and in terms of, I guess the other reason why I chose surgery at the time was that, I couldn't imagine not doing surgery as part of my job because I really enjoyed it. And other specialties, you kind of give up surgery entirely, except if you do opto on your or uh, things like that. And then, you know, when you're studying for surgery boards, what you realize is that you kind of have to know a bit about every body system. Like you have to know, like I studied critical care, physiology, internal medicine, um, cardiology. I mean, not to the extent that each of those specialties studies it, obviously, but, you know, if you're doing surgery on a dog that's cushing oil, you have to understand pushings and how it affects the body systems and and that sort of thing and you have to understand cardiology because you have to understand anesthesia and and all these sort of things so it and all the pharmacology that goes along with that yeah we have to kind of have a breadth of knowledge not as in-depth as everyone else but you sort of have to be a it's a little bit like a generalist because you work with everybody's system so I do enjoy that what would you say would be the other because North America has this loan problem that we were talking previously and it's not really a problem in Australia and some other countries, but here we have a lot of people with a lot of student loan debt and that low wage of a residency often isn't physically possible. So what would you say to someone that really loves surgery and wants to really get good at their craft, but maybe a residency isn't in the cards? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's very, it's possible to become a very proficient surgeon 
um, as a general practitioner and to really have a, you know, enjoyment of surgery and, and do a really good job. I think the key thing probably is to stick with it because when you, you know, I think many students perhaps graduate um, as new grads and think, wow, I really like surgery. I'm, I'm ready. I really want to try it out. And then if you don't have a great sort of mentorship environment where you're able to practice those skills when you first graduate for those first few years. So, you know, for example, a, a practice that allows you to go into a spay, take your time, you know, not under pressure and have some backup there available so that you can sort of practice and become more proficient and, and grow your skills then it's pretty easy if you don't do surgery straight away to then decide, oh, now I feel really uncomfortable doing this because it is tricky and it can be um, daunting and sort of stressful. And so, you know, getting into a, a new grad environment where there's going to be some surgical mentorship um, and some opportunity for you as the new graduate to do some surgery, even though you might be the slowest person and the least experienced in the practice, you know, not sort of getting sidelined. So making that a priority as you're, going to your job interviews and talking to your future bosses and mentors. And I found that talking to previous new graduates who'd, who'd been to that practice um, or worked at that practice was really helpful. You know, similar to talking to the current intern class, if you're going to an internship, you know, talking to other vets who may have started that practice as a new graduate and maybe they're still there. Maybe they really liked it and they thought it was great. And asking specific questions about, okay, so how is this surgical mentorship program structured? Like, is it written down? Do you have a structure are there benchmarks? Like after six months, I need to be able to, you know, spay a, a adult sized Labrador in under an hour. I, I don't know, some sort of, you know, benchmarks that are set <laughs> so that you're sort of working through it. And then once you've become proficient at, well, really spays and neuters and maybe small lump removals, then attending some, either having a, a mentor in the practice who does other surgery that you can learn from, or ideally, in addition, doing some formal courses in surgery. And there are increasingly really great practical courses that are offered at various locations around the country and around the world pre-COVID that are taught by specialists and that have, um, you know, cadavers and, and simulators and labs and will help you to get proficient at, at say, gastrointestinal surgery is your sort of logical next step. Or maybe you want to try, you know, doing learning to how to do a lateral suture technique on a cruciate ligament or things like that. And just sort of gradually building your skill set up and having sort of mentorship and and feedback, like critical feedback along the way is really helpful too. So that you're not just sort of self-taught and then self-reflecting because we all know that we're all biased. And so it's it's useful, you know, to have somebody else weigh in as well on, you know, how you're doing. I'm all for um, general practitioners, you know, becoming more efficient at surgery. I think another good place to become more experience in surgery is to be an emergency doctor in a practice that does um, where the emergency doctors cut surgical emergencies, because there are practices, I believe, certainly in Australia, lots of practices where the emergency doctors cut emergencies. And I think increasingly in the US to some practices like that. So again, you know, a practice where it's expected of you, it's part of your job, you're mentored and you build up, you know, from the simplest procedures first and then gradually through to the more complex ones. <laughs> We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. 
On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. I actually did two weeks at an emergency hospital, kind of like during Thanksgiving, and we had this dog, or no, sorry, it was a cat that came in with a linear foreign body. And it had to go to surgery and they actually let me be primary surgeon on it. And I had the doctor whose case it was like scrub in with me and guide me through the process. So I literally did everything from cutting to the resection and anastomosis of the intestine. Cause we had to take almost all of it. It was like 20 inches of this cat because it was just the linear form body of perforated everywhere. Oh no. Poor thing. I know it was awful, but really cool learning experience to resect an anastomose that intestine and then close up all the layers and the cat went home. Great. So it was really awesome. Yeah. It was so cool. That was like the most fascinating thing that I've done in surgery so far. And I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And I think it's surgery when you're, I mean, that's why being a resident is so much fun because you get to do a lot of the surgery with this guru scrubbed in with you. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's, you know, you feel very supported and um, it is really nice if you have a practice where you have a mentor that can scrub in with you. I think, you know, the scary thing about surgery is when you start having to go out by yourself and decision-making by yourself. But, you know, a lot of surgery is, you know, a lot of it's obviously physical hand skills, but a big chunk of it is decision-making. And that just comes from experience and mentorship. So, you know, having somebody teach you how to make those decisions, like how did you decide that you needed to remove intestine and how much intestine and, you know, all those kinds of decisions that you were making, like what kind of suture are you going to use on the intestine? And then on the linear, like sort of practicing making all those decisions so that you're not, um, not flying by the seat of your pants too much. And then, you know, increasingly like, you know, now I feel like I often, well, not often, but like, you know, occasionally procedures come up that I haven't done before, but most of the time I feel like because I've done lots of other procedures that are similar, or I've done parts of the procedure before, even if it's something really new to me, I still feel like I can work my way through it safely and, you know, and effectively. And that's how it starts to feel after you've been doing surgery for a little while is that you use the skills, piece them together and, and still, yeah, come out with a good outcome most of the time. Absolutely. And I feel like some of the, the decisions that we're not always faced with in school, like some of the specialty instruments that you use on certain tissues or the deciding what kind of suture to use on different types of tissues isn't something that we do repetitively enough to really solidify that. So I think for me in surgery to have someone, you know, explaining why you're using certain things and then you're like, oh, okay, well, I know now to use this on this type of tissue or this in this situation is really helpful. And then you get to remember it so you can use it next time. So it just increases your flow. Yeah. And I think one thing that you know, as a final year student, you're sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and it can be a really stressful and full on year. And sometimes you're in a rotation, you're just sort of hoping it, it will end. And I think once you become a new grad or even, even now, like sometimes I wish I could go back to a certain week in my residency and do it again, because now that I've tried to do the surgery myself, I think, wow, I wish I knew how to do that more efficiently. You know, I wish Dr. McLaughlin was here to show me, you know, how she does this. And so trying to sort of squeeze every uh, you know, all of the the benefit that you can out of your final year. And a good way to do that, I think, is to take case ownership, even if it's just in your head. And even if someone else is officially the case owner, you know, the resident or the faculty is, is really running the case. If you're practicing making the decisions and coming up with a plan, it's that 
process of decision making. So like what antibiotic are you going to use for how many days at what dose? How much will that cost the client? What size tablets does it come in? Like practicing going through that process over and over again, because those are the things in your first year out that will sort of trip you up. Like I still remember, you know, being faced with an ear infection and being like, hey, I know I need to give it, <laughs> you know, an antifungal eardrop. And then I went to the cabinet and there were six different types and I had no idea, you know, which one was the logical one to use. And it just creates all these stressful moments throughout the day. So yeah, practicing those decisions ahead of time is, is good. Yeah, absolutely. And just having someone to bounce those ideas off of, like I actually have um, a surgery rotation coming up um, next week and I'm super excited because I know they do a lot of ortho and a lot of different complicated surgeons. It's like a specialty center of, they have like three boarded surgeons there and they just do all the specialty surgeries. And I'm super excited. Hopefully they'll let me assist a little bit in their surgeries. So I'm really excited to just see how they approach everything and just, you know, seeing, you know, why did you choose this suture or what, why do you like this approach better than the other one? It's, you know, some people have different opinions on different approaches because they've seen, um, you know, what their outcomes have been with their patients, or they choose one approach with this subset of patient and another with another subset, depending on external factors. Yeah. I love scrubbing in with, with different surgeons because, you know, I do lots of the same procedures myself all the time, but every now and then you scrub in with someone else, you think, oh, you put a third gelpie there. That's helpful. Like I'll do that next time. You know, there's all kinds of little nuances that can help you out. And yeah, different people all have slightly different ways of doing things, which can be really helpful. And now, you know, if you look at how I do a TPLO versus my colleagues, we all do it slightly differently. And all of our methods are sort of a mixed bag of various mentors, you know, like even how we drape the leg, how we hold the leg, you know, the positioning of our plate on the bone, it's all very slightly different. It's all sort of based on who taught us and and then what we found, you know, works for us. So it's good to have sort of an open mind and pick up little pieces from different people along the way. Yeah, it's definitely like kind of a mini melting pot (laughs) of all your experiences and what works for you best. And then out comes this surgery plan (laughs) from all of that. (laughs) And what would you tell a new grad maybe to a couple things to focus on in their surgeries to begin with, you know, like how to really build their confidence when they, even if they're scrubbing in with someone for their first surgery as a doctor, how to really just build their confidence and their efficiency coming right out of school when everyone's kind of all anxiety filled and really scared. (laughs) Yeah. I think a big part of surgery is planning. So planning your everything from the approach you're going to use and how much you clip the patient and prep the patient. And then I like to try and rehearse the surgery in my head if it's something a little bit different. So I'll do that kind of the night before or the morning of, I'll get out my sometimes the anatomy book or the approaches book. Um, If it's orthopedics, I'll pull up the x-rays and template them. There's a whole bunch of planning. And then as I'm scrubbing, often I'll try and visualize the hard parts of the surgery. So kind of a little bit of a pre-surgery, you know, meditation time to, you know, you've got five minutes or so there. So, you know, take some, some deep breaths if you're feeling kind of stressed and rehearse that really hard part of the surgery and what you're going to do if, you know, if you experience trouble at that part. So that's a big, I think planning, planning is good because what, what trips people up sometimes is that they have an issue during surgery, like a dropped pedicle and a spay, for example, but maybe they haven't clipped the patient wide enough to actually extend their incision. And then it makes a stressful event even more stressful. So if you can kind of preempt those things, I think it's really helpful. And then the other thing as a novice surgeon is to try and focus on good technique and tissue handling. So 
you know, holding your instruments appropriately and using them how they're supposed to be used, you know, being gentle with the tissues because that will help you in every single surgery to progress. And it means that you'll be a little bit slower to begin with than maybe another surgeon or another new grad or whatever. But over time, your efficiency will improve and eventually surpass the person who has less good technique because, you know, I'm not the world's fastest surgeon, So, but I have watched people who are very, very efficient and do a very good job. And what they do, their, their movements are not fast. You know, their hands are not moving fast. They're not grabbing tissues and yanking things around, but they're not making any unnecessary movements. So every time they cut, they just cut once. It's the exact correct length of incision. And every time they pick up an instrument, it's the right one. And the way they hold their instruments means their hands don't get sore. And like, you know, it's really nice to watch somebody who's very, very a master surgeon, you know? And so you're not going to be a master surgeon at first, but if you're practicing something meticulously to begin with, if you're a little bit, you know, a bit of a perfectionist about it, then over time it will pay off and you'll be able to take on more challenging procedures because you have those basics in tissue handling. And you can practice that just from doing hundreds and hundreds of spays and neuters. You know, you don't, to become a, a good surgeon, you don't need to be doing a bunch of challenging procedures straight out of the gates. Like it's actually better to get really, really good at spays and neuters first. And then when you're faced with your first gastronomy or cystotomy, it won't seem so hard because you're so used to approaching the abdomen and using your instruments and suturing that you can learn other, you know, other surgeries from that. So yeah, I would just focus on, it sounds kind of boring, but it's sort of similar to learning a you know, a gymnastic skill or a musical instrument or anything like that, right? You, you have to learn the, the technique to begin with. Yes. Like I think in um, elementary school, they used to make us play the recorders and you had to get good at hot cross buns before you could move to the better songs. <laughs> so you got to get good at your space and neuters and your small little lump removals. And then you just go from there. Yeah, exactly. And then, then your patients will be better off for it too, right? And that's the ultimate goal is to have you know, good patient outcomes. So yeah, sometimes it's worth taking a little bit of extra time to begin with and and the efficiency and the speed will come with time. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. This is Dr. Quincy Hawley, and I'm here to tell you about a new show. It's Vet Candy Rounds with the Hawleys. That's right, Dr. Tierra, the love of my life, and I have teamed up to bring you the most fascinating cases in the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or a podcast platform of your choice, only on Vet Candy Radio. And do you do a lot of um, laparoscopic surgeries? That's something that seems to be coming more from human medicine into veterinary medicine. And I was curious to see if you had a lot of experience with it or not. I wouldn't say we do a lot of laparoscopic surgery. I work in a private practice in Bend, um, but we do do some. We have, and in Calgary, we also did some laparoscopic procedures. Generally, we do, um, the most common ones we do are laparoscopic space, so ovariectomies, Cryptorchid neuters, lap-assisted gastropexies, and liver biopsies would be the most common. But I've done a few PCCLs, so percutaneous cystolithotomies, where you make a tiny incision and, and um, remove bladder stones with the help of a cystoscope, a couple of those. They're really fun to do, and they also, the patients recover so much more quickly because they are less painful. And um, just like in people, it you know it's been shown to have really good patient outcomes. I think it's just a matter of you know, finding the case selection in a, in a smaller practice compared to a big academic hospital where you've got, you know, much bigger, much bigger caseload coming through. Like 
you know, laparoscopic cholecystectomies, the indications for them is incidentally found non-clinical gallbladder mucosils, and they're less common, at least in our practice, than the very sick, nearly ruptured, you know, gallbladder mucosil in a patient that is in SERS or something. And those ones are not amenable really to, to lap. So we tend to do those. The normal way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. It's so interesting to see all the, the new, you know, equipment and everything for surgery. It's really cool. And all the different, you know, advanced monitoring we have now for anesthesia. I think that's something that is, you know, what I'll kind of be thinking about too, is when you have compromised patients, putting them under anesthesia or feeling confident monitoring their anesthesia is, you know, I mean, sometimes more stressful than the surgery. If you're just trying to neuter this brachycephalic dog, but you're just, you know, trying to make sure this, this dog can breathe the procedure. So super important. Definitely. Yeah. And for something like, you know, back to the sick cholecystectomy, I mean, the surgery is not really what I worry about in those patients. It's more the, the anesthesia and the, the kind of systemic issues the patients are having. And, and so, yeah, with sick patients, the anesthesia can be quite challenging. So being, you know, if you're about to anesthetize the patient or you're considering doing a surgery, making sure that you as the vet are comfortable with managing, you know, whatever anesthesia issues may come up during the procedure too, which, you know, when you're outside of academia and you don't have a specialist anesthetist running your anesthesia, that can kind of increase the level of stress too, because you're in the middle of doing something that's quite hard and maybe you're a bit stressed about the procedure and the you know, often it's a tech who's running anesthesia and you're talking back and forth and they're saying, okay, the blood pressure's now 60. What do you want me to do? You know, <laughs> and, and you're like, well, hang on a sec. Like <laughs> I'm in the middle of something hard, but there's also something else, you know, challenging that you've got to deal with at the same time. So it kind of, yeah, being able to, to multitask those things. Exactly. Yeah. I really like some of the surgeries I've been in where they draw up the emergency drugs for every surgery, just in case. So they have them all ready in the right dose. So they can say, oh, give it this, you know, give it atropine or whatever it may be to level out their patient or give half the dose and see what happens, something like that. So they have all their emergency stuff ready. So they're not scrambling if the patient has something going on during the procedure. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it all comes down to planning again, right? So that's what we tend to do that with, especially emergency cases where the patient, you know, is not hundred percent systemically well. And we think, okay, so this patient is going to be hypotensive. And why are they hypotensive? Well, it's because they're hypovolemic and bleeding into their abdomen or something. Okay, so how are we going to manage that? Well, first we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And then, hey, have we blood type this patient? Like maybe we, need to, we might need to give blood. Like, do we have blood in the hospital? <laughs> kind of going through the troubleshooting before so that you're not, you know, stranded halfway through surgery wondering, you know, all those things. So yeah, it's good to be, be prepared. Do you guys collect your own blood samples from your, your clients or do you get it like shipped in from somewhere? Yeah, we, we have uh, volunteer donors, you know, dog, dog and cat donors in the community that, that donate to us. Yeah, that's really important. I heard that was um, super difficult to get during COVID. There were clinics running out of um, blood and plasma products. That was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, all <laughs> ran out of all kinds of things, right? Crazy, crazy pandemic times. But no, we have um, our internal medicine department um, generally manages the kind of blood collection program. But yeah, we have, I think we order in some uh, plasma products, but but blood products we collect from, um, from donors. So I guess what has been your favorite like aspect of being a veterinary surgeon? Has there been like any one moment that you were like, yes, like this is why I'm a surgeon or has there been anything that you've accomplished in the career that has just 
kind of really made that fulfillment for you as a surgeon? Yeah, I think, I mean, as a surgeon, we've all, you know, hopefully all surgeons have had, you know, some really rewarding clinical cases. And I think they're great. It's always nice to have worked with a family and a, and a pet, especially the ones that are sort of long-term chronic projects. And every now and then you're presented with a case and you think, this is going to be a project. You know, we're going to get to know each other really well over the next six to eight months, you know, and, and they, they can be really rewarding. But I think probably the most rewarding moments have been through teaching, honestly. And I've done a few, um, I did a one um, teaching program in Thailand and it's with Worldwide Veterinary Service, which is worth looking into if anyone's interested in volunteering. But so I was an instructor for this program of both Thai and Australian veterinarians who were doing a sort of a spay and neuter clinic, but also, you know, practicing and learning to spay and neuter. And one of them sent me this text through WhatsApp a couple of weeks later. And during his, during his program, we'd had this very, I mean, many of the dogs in countries like Thailand are thrombocytopenic because they have um, tick-borne diseases. And so they're often quite oozy, you know, you're doing a spay, it's already challenging. And then the dog's thrombocytopenic, it's just kind of the way they are. So you know, we had a very fat, in heat, large breed spay and we sort of worked through it together and, and it went fine, you know, in Thailand and talked through all the different tips and tricks and how we were going to approach it so that it was going to go as well as we could. Anyway, so he texted me a couple of weeks later and he said, I am so proud, you know, thank you so much. I had a big in heat, you know, German shepherd to spay today at my clinic and usually I would like hide in the toilet, but but this time I put my hand up for it and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to take this one <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he said he he used the tricks that we talked about and he remembered what it was like back in Thailand and he, you know, spayed the dog and he was just stoked. You know, this this guy was just, you know, it's really nice to see somebody who who previously was very hesitant at surgery and these are scary cases, you know, big, fat, bloody spays. You know, it's not, not a fun surgery most of the time. And so I was just very proud of him for kind of, first of all, volunteering and tackling it and then getting through it. Yeah, it was it was kind of a really a nice moment. So it's kind of, it is nice to be able to kind of pass on, help other people and improve, help improve people's confidence in surgery. Cause certainly I've, I've had some scary moments myself. It's not like when you, when you get ACVS certified, you're somehow immune to, to being stressed or <laughs> having issues, right? We all have them. So I think it's, yeah, it is nice to be able to help other people through that. Yeah. That's so cool. And does your clinic take interns or residents? through the match right now? Yeah, we do. We do. We have, I believe we're accepting four interns next year. Yeah. Do a mini plug. If you want to come be an intern at a super fun progressive clinic in Bend, Oregon, (laughs) you look out for the veterinary referral center, but no, seriously, we we do accept interns. Um, Most of the vets at our practice really like teaching and we have general clubs and rounds and things set up and yeah, we have, because we are in kind of a smaller town, we do have a, a pretty varied, caseload of all kinds of things because we're the the one of the only referral centers within a pretty big radius so we kind of have a fun mixture of of different types of cases coming through plus we have a beer tap in the lobby because it's been so right <laughs> right yeah because we're in the middle of the match right now I think I forget when all that stuff is due but it's uh I think it's due pretty soon because people find out in what March yeah yeah I haven't been involved in it fortunately for a few years myself. Yeah, for definitely a stressful, stressful time. Absolutely. So if anyone listening wants to come work with uh Dr. Bronwyn <laughs> in Bend, or if they're looking to, that'd be great. We'd love to hear if one of our listeners ends up going to 
um, her clinic for an internship and seeing how that goes. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> we'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Julio Alonso. Do you want to keep up with everything Vet Med? Then check out my show on Vet Candy TV. We talk about clinical updates, science news, plus some of the coolest people in our profession. Stream at My Vet Candy 24-7 on YouTube, iTunes, and most other video platforms. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode today. I hope you are ready to kick butt in that surgery suite when you graduate because you can do it and take your time and you'll get there. And, um, you know, everyone starts somewhere. So having a good mentor is so critical and we have so many resources available today to help in your surgery competencies. So um, we hope to talk to you guys next time pretty soon. So thank you all for listening. This has been Vet Kindly IRL and I'm Shannon Gregoire. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.